Let's pray together. Our Father, when we contemplate an invitation to come and behold a holy God, we immediately feel inadequate. How could we do such a thing? How could you allow us into your presence? How could we, mortal, sinful people, dare to behold the holy God? And then you remind us that not because of us, but because of Christ in us, Christ whose blood has covered us, has made it possible for us to behold the holy presence of God and live. And so, Father, this morning as we consider the great cost of that invitation and reality, I pray that we might not take lightly at all how much our Savior loves us and what he has done for us and who we therefore need to be, O Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen. As you're turning in your Bibles to John 18, I want to remind us that the author of this gospel, John, has had 60 years roughly to consider the details of the arrest and trial of Jesus Christ. He had the benefit of other writings And uh, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, he settles on certain details that are quite different from the other gospel writers. There are some, some parallels, but he's not one of the synoptic writers. And there's a reason for that because of the time span that, that, that was between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But let's not forget, because I've tried to share this with you as often as I can, the purpose of John. These things were written. Surely you can parrot it back to me by now. These things were written that you might believe that Jesus... Are you all afraid of what you know? Jesus... Listen, I, I told you, you have to read this text five times by the end of the summer, right? You have to memorize this verse. September. When I'm on this platform, I won't tell you which Sunday, we're going to stand and recite that verse together. John 20, verse 30. That you might believe these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and what? This is important to us, and by believing, 
you might have life in his name. That's not a hard verse to learn. It means so much to us. This is the purpose of John. John is showing us Jesus. We just sang about beholding a holy God so that we might experience life in his name and never, ever, ever betray him. No matter how dark it gets, this is the intention of this, the presentation of John as he portrays the trial, the arrest and trial of Jesus, that you might never, ever betray Christ, no matter how dark it gets in your life. Because God is always fully in charge. Do you believe that? God, our God is a sovereign God. He is always, always, always in charge. And in the prologue of John, John chapter one, it's kind of like the index of the rest of the gospel where he kind of sets the stage of the things that you're going to read. He says in the prologue, you're going to read that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. John 1, 5. John says, I, I'm gonna explain that to you a little bit later in the text. But just to whet your appetite in the prologue, John chapter one, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. Well, John 18 and 19 are John 1, 5 expanded. John basically gets here and said, remember what I said at the very front of the, the gospel? Well, this is it. I'm showing you how this took place. But let me just give you a little bit of backdrop here before we jump right into the text. It might seem like a, a lot of backdrop, but let me just give you a, some backdrop. Darkness is motivated by power. Light, on the other hand, is motivated by service. Darkness seeks to hide evil. Light exposes evil. To hold power accountable from or for corruption, light must be free to judge. That's why the king and the priest or the judicial must remain separate offices unless your name happens to be Christ, in which case you can be both priest king and prophet. But in the human setting, if you remember, Saul tried to become prophet and he was taken to task for that because the king and the priest, and the priest was the judicial in the Old Testament law, had to remain separate to hold accountable. In every corrupt state, the executive level of governments seek to collude with and control the judicial. The judicial, if righteous, will take counsel from the priesthood and fight for both an independent judicial and a moral priesthood to remain in concert with one another and separate from the executive. I'm building the case for the politics of Jesus' time but if you're paying attention, I'm building a parallel context 
for the present political situation we find ourselves in. That's why Baptist distinctives, one of the Baptist distinctives is separation of church and state. Someone has to hold the state accountable. And so the priesthood is that level of authority that holds the state to the natural and moral law of God. Now, politically there was trouble in the first century Palestine. Surprise, surprise. So as Jesus was leading his bewildered band of men from the temple precincts, having prayed, we've been dragging hours out for weeks because John drags it out, but it's truncated, that Passover night, where they were heading to the Mount of Olives to a garden grove that Jesus knew and had taken his men to before called Gethsemane, which meant olive press. As Jesus was taking his men, all the more, making the mood all the more poignant, Jesus had to cross from the temple, had to cross down over the Kidron Valley and cross a brook that would be flowing with sacrificial lamb blood. Estimates were somewhere in the neighborhood of 275,000 lambs would have been slaughtered at Passover at the temple. And the blood would flow down into the Kidron Valley. Now get the picture. Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray while stepping over the brook of lamb's blood on his way. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the light of life, was on his way to voluntary arrest and trial in the darkness of Satan's earthly agencies. A despotic authority, drunk with power, and colluding at that time with the judicial priesthood. for sake of position. The darkness had persuaded the wicked that Jesus was not good and was dangerous. So North American Christians, I would submit, are living within the same playbook as first century Palestine. Wickedness is increasingly being unrestrained and is taking a common look of ancient patterns, ancient evil patterns. What are they? The executive level is stripping the judicial of independence and a religious priesthood capitulating to the state wickedness. That's the lay of the land, beloved. So this makes this text all the more instructive for us in terms of how to meet the challenges of a first century style political system. 
Canadian power brokers are bullying judicially granted rights, while so-called Christian priests are ordering the ensigns of sexual perversion to fly over the learning spaces of children. And they'll host a parade today for that. Why? Because the darkness is addicted to power and the darkness seeks to hide evil. And the political system is aligning to make that happen. So let's look at John 18 and partway through John 19. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with his commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon, Peter, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? And those who heard me, surely they know what I said. Or ask those who heard me, surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? 
Then Annas sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about it, about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. 
Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation, of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God. This narrative that um, John has put together on the basis of details that he himself was an eyewitness of, as John was there, he intends for his audience to see the darkness of the arrest and the trial of Jesus. But it's intended to hearten every believer who reads it. particularly those of you who might be facing bullying tactics of political unrighteousness or injustice or even religious abuse. For every one of you who might be here or listening to this, this is intended to encourage you. Jesus is not a victim of darkness. He steps forward to control the terms and conditions of his arrest and his trial. God uses darkness, you know, for the greater good and glorious purposes of our great God. See, evil has a pressure force, a pressure force in our world that is restrained by God. At times, he allows some of that pressure to be exerted in certain situations, even into our lives, for his own good purposes, his own sovereign purposes. We can't see. (laughs) The disciples surely couldn't see. Those who were there that day could not see. What we are able to see now, and it may be until eternity, until you are able to see why the pressure forces are on you, why God is allowing things to be on you. But this text is intended by John to to shout at us the victory of Jesus Christ, to let us know that, that God never loses control, ever. A sovereign, omnipotent God who also we learned indwells us by the powerful presence of his Holy Spirit never just casts us into darkness unaccompanied, unhelped, without resources, without his power. Never. You only have to read the book of Job. to see how God operates, how a sovereign God operates. 
We don't always understand his ways. But it does explain the battle with darkness. And Satan is the author of his own evil works, but God co-ops the works of Satan to accomplish his glorious purposes. That's why Luther, Martin Luther was right when he said, the devil is God's devil. We are not living in a dualistic universe where two equal powers are dueling it out. No, 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 no. We are living in a universe that is completely dominated by a sovereign God over all things, including wickedness and darkness. How many times did John report in the, this text, this was done to fulfill scripture. This was done to, to honor what Jesus had already prophesied would happen because God was entirely in control of all that took place here. As heinous as it seemed on the surface, your life is there. The, this story, what, what happened then, can and is still happening now. So let me just go over with you, and I, I need to move quickly, but let's break down what Jesus faced. There were five challenges in overtaking the darkness, and I want to point them out to you because these are the same five challenges that fundamentally you and I are facing and will face if we haven't. Now, Jesus had stated in John 15, 25, they hated me without cause. It's true. What, what charge could we bring against Jesus? They hated him without cause. And Jesus goes on to say in John 15, 19, and they will hate you too. Why? Because you're connected with me. You identify with me. They hated me without cause. They'll hate you. So the primary target, of course, of demonic energy are the people in places in offices with the most potential to damage the kingdom. And here are some of them. Corrupt politics is the first. I think resonating in all of our minds, whenever we look at Pilate's discussion with Jesus, is that phrase, what is truth? It always leaps out at us. Particularly when we think of politics. Politics juxtaposed to truth is an odd thing. At least for many in politics. I want to give kudos and I want to give a shout out to those who labor and battle in politics for righteousness. Because there are those who do that. And let's not forget that. But there is great corruption in politics throughout our world and throughout the history of our world. And what is truth? How politics manages truth is one of those areas of corruption. Generally, truth by the majority of politicians is to be manipulated for political purposes, for retaining power, for staging power. Let's understand something that... that um, it's one of the most favorite rhetorical questions of the power-addicted elite. Well, what really is the truth? I've heard the leader of our country say, well, truth is experiencing the same thing differently. That's not truth. That's an excuse, that's an excuse to abandon truth. What? <laughs> that we get to experience the same thing differently? by the man who has water in drink boxes. It seems to me that 
that truth is in corrupt politics, whatever those in power decide it is. And Jesus was declared guilty of opposing Caesar when we know full well he didn't oppose Caesar. In fact, he said, he took a coin and said, what, what, what's on the coin? Well, Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He didn't see Jesus ever, ever opposing the political situation. He was no threat to the politics. He was declared guilty of opposing Caesar, not because it was true, but because Caiaphas's economic forum decided it was true. That the theological consensus table of the high priests decided it was true. It's interesting here because we get the impression that Pilate was caught off guard by the bringing of Jesus to him, and, and uh, he wasn't caught off guard at all. We, we discover in the first line, or the second line, or third, or wherever it is, uh, verse 3, that uh, Pilate was very much involved in the arrest of Jesus. He knew full well what was going on here. He was in cohort with, with the uh, chief priests, the high priest. It says there was a detachment of soldiers. A detachment or a cohort of Roman soldiers uh, would be in the neighborhood of 800 men, okay? That's what a cohort was, a detachment of Roman soldiers. Not only was there a detachment of Roman soldiers, but there were some officials of the chief priests because the high priest also had, the Jews also had their own Swiss guard, And so you have this massive army. Now, probably not 800, but we, we don't know that. But no less than 200 armed men plus Jew temple soldiers accompanying this, for this arrest of an unarmed preacher. In fact, it almost seemed, if we all didn't know better, that they brought an army to take down a king. And they were ill-prepared for the man they found when they asked for Jesus of Nazareth and he spoke, I am he. They were ill-prepared for their first earthly brush with God. And it says they drew back and fell. Now, you can read all kinds of commentators who make excuses. They tripped over each other and all this. These were, listen, to, listen. This was a detachment of highly trained Roman armed soldiers used to marching in step. They fell down because they encountered the voice of the living God. And someday, every one of us will stand in the presence of that same Jesus and we will fall flat on our faces in his presence. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not from 
this world. I, Pilate, look, relax. I haven't come to overthrow your kingdom if I wanted to. I could call my people. I could call my angels. If I wanted an earthly kingdom, I could have it. Pilate, you don't seem to know that the earth and all that's in it already belongs to me. But no, I've come. I've come as the king of hearts. The king over hearts, of over, to come to rule unruly hearts and souls to wave the white flag of surrender to a holy God. I, I've come to, to build a, a people after my name. A, a people that won't be about overthrowing governments, but rather will seek to call people to surrender their hearts to the right king of the universe. Like Jesus, to unveil the truth about God. They will answer the question, what is truth? My people will answer that question. That's why I've come. You would have no power if it were not already granted to you from heaven, Pilate. This is him speaking to a pagan king. Make no mistake about it, all of the powers of this world are there only at the bidding of God and for his holy purposes. The church has not come to force people to bow to Christianity because faith forced is faith faked. Just like when you frog march people to a flagpole, support forced is support faked. It doesn't work. But I can tell you that this wouldn't have worked at all if it weren't for a capitulating priesthood. If you were paying attention, I'm sure you were as shocked as, as I was when I read this text all over again and heard the religious leaders utter this statement. We have no king but Caesar. What? The shepherds of God's holy people. Those entrusted with the very oracles of God. The king of the universe. Are now stating we have no king but Caesar. The more politics and political systems are invited to join religion, the more likely it is to be corrupted. That's why our distinctive is the separation of church and state. Caiaphas' religion was a personal enterprise. It included power and position and money and all of that. You know, I, I, I don't have time to really dig deeply here, but just, just suffice it to say that, that the, the, the religion that Caiaphas, the high priest, was representing was a complete violation of, of everything that he was supposed to stand for. You, you, you need to know that, that human rights without boundaries, without guardrails, unbridled, will collapse under its own weight. We're seeing that 
unless someone compromises their rights. Someone has to compromise. And what we are seeing in our setting is the legal system is being co-opted to compromise the law and the religious systems are being co-opted to compromise religion, to compromise Christianity. That's what Annas, Caiaphas, Annas was uh, the, the, uh, the godfather of the high priest system during the reign of Herod's. He had five sons and a son-in-law. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. They had a dynasty of high priesthood going on. Caiaphas himself um, was part of a long line of uh, family enterprise that controlled the sacrificial system. In fact, it was called derogatorily the bazaars of Annas because the, the Annas family were keepers of the sacrificial offerings. So when you brought an offering to the temple, you had to bring an unblemished animal. And the determination of whether it was unblemished or not was the high priest and his henchmen, like Malchus, who got his ear cut off. And invariably, the animal that you brought could be perfect, but they would find some blemish on it because they just happened to have a farm of animals that they had deemed unblemished at an exorbitant price. And you had to buy your sacrifice from them. And they made a gigantic family business out of it. They were incredibly wealthy. They were hated by the people. So you understand why they were in cahoots with the government. We have no king but Caesar because working under this system has been very lucrative to Annas and Caiaphas. They put Jesus on trial. But it wasn't for blasphemy and it wasn't for treason. It was because Jesus had cut into their lucrative profits at the temple when he overturned the tables and called them out on their thievery. And they knew, Caiaphas in particular, knew what would finally force the hand of Pilate. Pilate, you see, had made a few um, political mistakes, missteps. And he was on thin ice with Caesar. Not that they had ice there, but you know in Canada. And so he really didn't have another strike in him. And so when the religious leaders couldn't get Pilate to find anything judicially wrong with Jesus. They threatened him by saying, well, anyone who calls himself a king is a threat to Caesar and is no friend of Caesar. So, Pilate, do you have another strike in you if we happen to mention to Caesar that you're no friend of his? That's what took Jesus to the cross. Bribery, manipulation, lies. And then there's the crowd psychosis. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Absurd emotion and rejection. Most of them didn't even know anything about Jesus other than he was a good man, that he did good things, that he did wonderful things. What is it with a crowd? How do you get people to believe that good is bad and rescue is dangerous? You tell them the same thing whether it's true or not enough times and people will believe anything. 
Mark Twain was right when he said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they have been fooled. And so in a frenzy, they called out, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. It made no sense. Why would anybody do that? Because crowds become psychotic. How vulnerable are you allowing yourself to come under the ire of crowd psychosis? Ah, The church is in danger. The church is in danger. We're outnumbered. We're very outnumbered from a human perspective. You will be punished and they will choose a likely sex offender like they chose Barabbas or a female impersonator or a gender designed terrorist because they want Barabbas, not you. And then there's always the colluding insider Judas was also betraying him, knew the place. It's interesting, um, and I hope that I'm known as this. I hope hope if anybody ever wants to arrest me someday on a Sunday, they will know where I am. And I hope that's true of you too. The reason that Judas was able to take them to Jesus is because it was a place his common where he went to pray with his disciples. Judas knew where a righteous man would be. And I hope the people around you know where righteous you are on Sunday. What did Judas hope to gain? 30 pieces of silver? No, I, you know, it doesn't, the text doesn't say, but I've tried to think, what was Judas all about? And I think Judas was about one of two things. It was either about ambition, which everybody goes in that direction, or bitterness. I think it might have been bitterness. I'll tell you why. I'll I'll give you at least the common one, which is ambition. Yeah, you know, the Judas probably want to force a showdown between Jesus and the government so that that they could get on with this kingdom thing because Judas wanted a position in the kingdom. But, you know, betraying, betraying your king doesn't get you a position in the kingdom anymore, does it? So, was he really that daft that he thought by betraying Jesus he would have a position in Jesus' kingdom? I don't think so. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think maybe for some reason Judas was mad at God. I I have no proof of this, but I've seen it so many times in ministry. And when we look at colluding insiders, the people who are most dangerous to Christianity are those people who have become mad at God. Insiders who know the truth, who know what we are, but they become mad at God for some reason. Something happened in their life. Something happened in their childhood. Who has so hurt them and, or happened in a church. You've been religiously abused. You've been hurt somehow. And people take it out on God. It hasn't been God. It's been people, but people take it out on God. God, you're sovereign. You could have done something. Jesus is not taking it out on God. God, you could have prevented this arrest and trial. God, you could have prevented this cross. No, he says to his disciples, should I not go to the hour that my father has called me to go to? But I wonder if Judas wasn't angry with God. And the reason I say that is because he kept taking shots, you know, like when he was with, uh, took, took the anointing of the perfume and he said, you know, that money could have been used better to go and, and take care of the poor even though Judas himself had his hands in the treasury, he could, have, he could have taken care of the poor. People who are mad at God are 
addicted to criticizing Christianity and Christians, to try and get back at God. And I feel like, I feel as if Judas might have been that. And so I say to you, I say to you this morning, don't ever allow personal ambition or bitterness toward God to, to drive you to collude with the wicked and the evil and the liars and those against God instead of goodness and morality and righteousness and purity. And then, of course, there's the character challenge friend. <laughs> I, how many times I looked at what Peter said and he said, I am not. Using that glorious statement that Jesus made, uh, I am uh, the great I am. And Peter said, I am not of that. I think that might have been what shook him up so much. But listen, let me just say something before we just complete this about Peter. Because Peter, Peter takes a bad rap and I'm not sure he should take as bad a rap as he takes. Peter was the first one who stood forth and declared the identity of Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God. The living God. Not like these dead idols around us. He was the one who took out the sword. Hey, guys, a minimum of 200 Roman soldiers and the temple guards, however many there were, and Peter's going to take them all on himself. I like Peter a lot. He was the one, while all of the other disciples, except for like John, because whoever the disciple was that was invited in, John, probably, because the high priest knew him. You probably ask, why did John know the high priest? Well, his father Zebedee had a fish, fish business, the fish drying business. You had to have dried fish to get to, to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be spoiled from Galilee. John likely had a satellite business going on in Jerusalem. John and James, the Sons of Thunder, selling fish, dried fish to Caiaphas. And there's good ancient tradition for this. There's an Arabic cafe in old ancient Jerusalem that was once a really ancient church. It's still there, a super ancient church that has been traditionally considered to be a church founded by the Zebedee family. It goes back that far. And it was based in, the, the tradition is that it was based in their storefront. So John hauls, Peter and John go. Where do all the other disciples go? They take off and run. Peter goes to the arrest and the trial. So he stood up for Christ. He took off an ear. He goes into harm's way. And for some reason, he falls apart with a servant girl. I can't explain that other than, can any of us explain the moments we've failed Jesus? They've been unlikely. They've been like, how did, how did I cave there? Why would I cave, why would I cave with, with this person? This little girl asked me if I love Jesus, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know him. Why, why would I cave there? I don't think Peter understood himself other than he, he, was, he was under the sheer weight of flawed humanity. We all have a misstep in us. 
We all do. Or, or three or four. And, and Jesus, Jesus knows the difference between colluding with evil and falling prey to it. And here's what's necessary for all of us. Somewhere along in our walk with Jesus, and I believe this was, Peter's moment was when Jesus confronted him, and we'll look at that later, on the Sea of Galilee and said, Peter, do you love me? Each one of us must confront that question of who are we, who, who really are we? The identity question. So I'm a Christian. Oh, no, no, come on. Yes, but are you really? Who are you? Because somewhere, sometime, no matter what is happening, good or bad, through tough times or easier times, you're going to need to be able to settle that question and answer that question and stay there. And come to the realization, I am a follower of the King, the Lord, Jesus Christ. That's my identity. My identity is not what people say I am or all of that. My identity is in Christ. It is held in Him. It is based on who He is. It's not based on my circumstances. It's not based on what people think of me or what I want them to think of me or whatever. It's based on who Christ is and who you are. More than a few Christian institutions have fallen apart because they don't really know their identity. And they identify more with the institution than they do with the Christ of the institution. And believe me, when I call you to membership at Calvary, it's not so that you will hold high the institution of Calvary Baptist Church, but rather the Christ who is the king of Calvary Baptist Church. It's him we worship. It's his identity we take upon ourselves. Otherwise, you will deny Christ. Unless you settle who you are, no matter what, you will deny Christ. Well, let me wrap this all up. I'm sorry, I've gone a tiny bit over time, but let me wrap this up. Because this is what John really wanted us to note. Oh, there are these five challenges. But in this text, the real focus is on Christ the King. When Jesus says to Pilate, you are right. I am a king. You are right. I am a king, 1837. A neat exercise is to go through the text that I gave to you this morning and from verse 33 of chapter 18 to verse 16, circle all the times the word king or kingdom appears. You already done that? 13 times. 13 times the prominent visual for us underneath all of the mess and all of the noise of the darkness of wicked, evil people trying to squash the king of glory. 
John wants every beleaguered pilgrim, every misused person, every abused person here, every abused ragamuffin who is with us this morning or watching, everyone whose head is downcast or heart is downcast, everyone who's being pummeled by control freaks and narcissists and power brokers, every one of you who feels that way this morning, the purpose of John is to call you to lift up your head and see your king, the king of glory. And just in case we couldn't see it very well, the Holy Spirit directed John to write this whole section in a chiastic structure. I don't want to get super technical with you, but I want to suffice it to say that it's not accidental that John wrote this in a sort of a pyramidal fashion in, in, the, in, in the layout of the text. There's a big chiasm and there's a little chiasm. And, and, and if I were teaching you, I'd, I'd take more time with this, but, but you'll get it when I point out to you because I've written it out. John 19 verses one to three is an apex structure. On the one, on the one it starts out by they flogged Jesus. And then they fashioned a crown and then a purple robe, and then hail king, and then they struck him again. You see this, this thing that's driving to a picture, driving to an observable point, the purple robe of Jesus. In, in everything that John has structured here, it's to point to this, in all of the mess, and all of the noise, all of the wickedness, and all of the evilness, It, you could not hide the truth that Jesus truly was and is the King, the Lord, the Lord of glory. He is the King. The looming reality is that even in all the evil hell could throw at Jesus, he remained sovereign King. Their basest shots at him only serve to highlight the reality that he's the one truly enthroned. The conspiracy to destroy the hope of humanity was being used to enthrone Jesus and exalt him. And that's why he says to you and me and everybody listening, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So this is my question to you this morning. What side are you on? What side are you on? Can you say here this morning that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I believe that by believing on him, I will experience life? This is the judgment that Christ came to offer. First you judge yourself. People say, don't judge me. You don't judge me. I'm not judging you today. I'm asking you a question. What side are you on? Because everybody on the side of truth listens to Jesus. So you, you judge yourself. 
Pilate said, well, what is truth? And he didn't want to go any further. Listen, if you think you can abdicate yourself from that question and be okay, you cannot. By abdicating yourself from that question and saying, I refuse to answer that question, you have confirmed your lostness. And everyone is going to judge themselves. Everyone's judging themselves. But someday there'll be an eternal judgment that will confirm for all time who you are. So it's decision time, beloved. It's decision time. Everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. What side are you on? Our Father and our God, I pray and thank you for the overwhelming evidence of the kingship of Jesus Christ who orchestrated all the terms and conditions of his arrest and trial for our sakes and his glory that we might be saved by a sacrificial lamb of God a perfect, sinless, unblemished sacrifice that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here listening today who has not settled that question, what side are you on? The side to be on is Jesus' side. And everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If we learn anything from Jesus' life here among us, we learn this, that injustice and abuse are going to drag you around a little bit. But he's only going to permit you to get rug burns. He's going to guard your heart for your good and for his glory. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.